0: It's my honor to be reading scripture today as always. We're in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: You may be seated. Thank you, Barb, for reading that for us. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and I have the privilege and honor of getting to open up the Word of God with you and for you this morning. And so if you're not already there in your Bibles, if you would, please get them and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. I've said, like the, I've said things like this before, but there are certain Sundays where when we get done singing, I almost feel tempted just to come up and pray and dismiss because my heart is so ministered to by the words we sang this morning, for me at least, was one of those. I hope it was encouraging to you as well, but to be reminded of God's faithfulness, his love, his pursuing care of us, that all is well with our souls because of who Jesus Christ is, regardless of our circumstances. And the author of that song, the story is well known, I won't go into it this morning, but the author of that song went through tremendous heartache and difficulty as he was writing it. So understand that to the extent that your own heart is troubled this morning, perhaps even rightly so. Understand that you have a God who knows you and loves you. He's given you a family to worship alongside of and to care for you in this season, and we're so glad that of all places you could be, you chose to be here. First Peter chapter 2. Well, for as long as I can remember, I've been into history. I won't go so far as to, as to deem myself a history buff, because I'm not sure exactly who hands out those uh, honorary titles, but I've always been a fan of history. In fact, my original aim in life was to go to school um, for a history degree, and I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with that, but uh, teaching history was always something that had kind of been an interest of mine, at least. And so, in particular, um, the, per- the particular period of history that's always had the most fascination for me, as with many people, is World War II. I'm just a sucker for World War II books and movies and shows and documentaries and all those kinds of things. It's just such a fascinating period of history for a a host of different reasons. Um, But in particular, one of the shows that I find myself going back to every few years and watching it through again uh, is a miniseries that HBO put out probably 20 years ago now called Band of Brothers. And if you've seen it or if you've not, it doesn't really matter, but I'll give you just the the highlights of it. It follows um, the exploits of Easy Company, which was an airborne troop in World War II, follows their exploits beginning in training and D-Day and then ultimately through, uh, through the liberation through Western Europe. And so just this fascinating story. And this story, the story highlights a few particular characters, but kind of at its center is this man, a true historical man, whose name was Dick Winters. Dick Winters were seen in some of the opening shots of this TV show, working with his troops, He's a sergeant, I believe, at this point. Uh, and in one particular point in the story, um, one of the upper uh, generals had come in and said, I want you all to go on this long hike, this long run. It's miles away. You can't have water. He made them do it immediately after a very large meal. So they were not prepared in any way for what it was that they were about to endure. And so you see these men going on this long hike. Men are vomiting. They're sick. Many of the men are injured, they're having a hard time, and here comes Dick Winters, the sergeant of this, uh, of this particular uh, brigade of men. He knows these men well, and he comes along singing Easy Company's fight song. And he inspires them to continue on and to press forward. Right from the beginning, you get the sense that this is exactly the kind of guy that you would want to follow into battle. And as we follow the story of these brave soldiers uh, through the various things that they had to endure, you see this one particular man come forward again and again and again as this particular type of leader. To the point where he he, he, uh, begins to be promoted through different ranks. And in one particular scene, he sees his men, these men whom he cares for and loves and has fought alongside. He sees them being shot. He sees some of them being killed, and he sees them going through a formation that he knows is ultimately going to lead to their demise, and he wants to run out and be alongside them. He wants to be with them in the battle. He wants to be with them in the fray, and he has to be pulled back by somebody who outranked him because he's reminded that his position in the company is now too important to be on the front lines of the battle, and you can see the conflict in his eyes. He wants to be in the thick of it, with them. There's something about seeing scenes like that that resonates deeply with our hearts. We can all appreciate a leader, whether that's a boss or a military leader or whatever it is, we can all appreciate a leader who isn't going to ask you to do something that he or she would not be willing to do themselves. And as I think about the practical benefits, if I can use that term without it sounding too light, if I think about the practical benefits of Christianity. Aside from all of the wonder of what we've talked about, the new identity and the new hope and eternal salvation and the dependence on Christ and all of these different things, one of the most practical things that we're given in the Christian faith is that Christ himself is that worthy example. He is the one we're following. He is the one who was willing to go there himself. He is the one who was willing to go to the ends of the earth for you. He is the one who is worthy to follow into battle. But not only is he an example, he is also the means by which we accomplish our assigned tasks. In other words, Jesus Christ is both the inspiration and the ignition, he is the motivation and he is the power to do what he's instructed us to do. And so last week, Peter began fleshing out the practicalities of our faith and how it's lived out in this world. And in particular, he comes to this idea of how is it that Christians are to interact within worldly broken systems with the authorities that are in place over us. And so last week in particular, he talked about that idea of what's the Christian's relationship to governmental authority. And today, for lack of a better word, he's talking about what is the Christian's interaction with occupational authority. And though his example in this text is one that can be rather foreign from all of our experience, it still contains all sorts of practical applications for us. So read with me if you would, beginning in verse 18. He he starts by addressing his subjects, and here's what he says. Servants, be subject. In other words, have regard for your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. Now, the word that's here translated as, uh, as servant in our Bibles is the Greek word oikatos. It literally means to be a servant within a household. And your translation of the Bible, depending on what you translation, uh, depending on what translation you might have, uh, may rightly translate that word as slaves. But we need to just. Press pause for a moment because all of us, when we hear that word slave, immediately our mind goes to the history of slavery within our own cultural context and we kind of get wormholed into that particular perspective. But understand what it is exactly that Peter is talking about here when he uses that word slave or servant of the household because slaves in this era functioned very differently. Slaves in this era were not merely unskilled laborers that were assigned with menial tasks that had to be done, but often these slaves were, according to one theologian, managers, overseers, and trained members of various professions, doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, skilled artisans. They were normally paid for their services and could expect eventually to purchase their freedom. Slaves were the lowest class within Roman society, but they were still regarded as a class. There were particular rules that applied to how masters were intended to treat their slaves. Slaves were given the opportunity to purchase their way out of slavery. But according to what we find here from Peter, their treatment was not always as fair and just as Roman law demanded it ought be. Though some people would voluntarily enter slavery as a means of paying a debt, for instance, Many others were, in fact, slaves involuntarily. We know that Roman conquests had led to large groups of people from other parts of the world being brought in as a slave caste. We know that people that were born into slave families were then also continued were also considered to be slaves. And so Peter here is addressing, if you were to find yourself at this time in the first century as a slave in a Roman household, how is it yours to interact? And his instruction here echoes what we find in the book of First Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul writes about the same exact topic, and here's what Paul says in verse 17 of that chapter. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity." Now here ultimately is what Peter and Paul are both jointly saying. They're saying, understand that regardless of what your position in life is, however society views you, however much worth our culture has assigned to you by virtue of your family or what you were born into or the job that you hold, understand this, you have a worth and a responsibility in God's eyes that is greater than your station in life. And imagine how hopeful that reminder must have been for these people who were slaves and were mistreated. And even as we hear that, even as we hear this instruction to Peter, in a modern context, looking at it from our own perspective, we look back on this as antiquated and silly. Our perspective is this, Peter, why aren't you instructing these slaves to fight for social justice, for social change, Why aren't you instructing them to fight against the powers that exist and to overthrow the system and to establish fair treatment for all people? Why, in other words, are you continuing a system that would allow for the mistreatment of individuals? But remember here what Peter is primarily after. Peter is primarily after explaining the living hope that belongs to these people by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ, something that cannot be taken away. In other words, Peter is not writing here with the intention of propping up a system of slavery, particularly forced slavery. We find, we find that exact idea talked about in 1 Timothy where this idea is referred to as man-stealing, literally imprisoning people against their will to make them a slave in your household. It's specifically condemned in Scripture. We find Paul in the passage that we just referenced specifically stating that if you are able to get your freedom, you ought to get it. So the point here is not to bolster up a system that was systemically flawed, but the point is neither just to correct a system. It is to say that regardless of where you find yourself, regardless of whether or not change can be attained, you still have a living hope. And do you see how much more substantial that is in an eternal sense for the individual than the mere changing of a social structure? And think about this practically because, humanly speaking, outside of your very life being taken, is there anything that could happen to, you, happen to you that is more dehumanizing than becoming the property of someone else? So the natural question and the right question that follows us some 2,000 years removed is this, well, what does this actually have to do with me? How are you going to try to apply this verse on slavery to my life? Well, this is where we have to contextualize the teaching of God's word. We have to try to figure out how it applies to our lives in 21st century America America, where we have not experienced this master-slave relationship. And as many theologians point out, free people at this time function in much the same way that independent contractors would today. But this master-slave relationship actually made up a bulk of employment in the Roman world. It was the most widespread form of employment. And so when Peter here gives this instruction to demonstrate respect to the masters, what he is ultimately saying is this, understand that you are to hold up, hold up, rather, your end of the relationship. And here's the hard part, not just to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And again, everything in us fights that notion. When he uses that word unjust, it's the Greek word scolios. It's the root word of where we get our word scoliosis, and it literally means crooked. How do you interact with a crooked boss? And the idea in this particular context might be a boss who comes along and says, well, I'm going to pay you X amount. And then when you actually receive your first paycheck, you realize there were all kinds of things for which you were not paid and all kinds of expenses which you were not told about that are now taken out of your paycheck. How do you respond in the moment where someone in a position of authority in your life mistreats you? And Peter's answer is, we have the responsibility as believers to react appropriately even when mistreated. In other words, we're not looking to take an eye for an eye, but we're looking to be respectful of the dignity of others, even in moments where there is substantial and serious disagreement and disrespect. Now, does that mean that in a free market economy, we have a responsibility to stay in a job where we are being mistreated? No, I don't think that's the instruction that's being given here. The instruction that's being given here is not to make yourself a rug for somebody else to wipe their feet on. We would take our cue there from Paul again, where he says, if you're able to get your freedom, you should try to get it. But but understand what he's saying here. He's saying there is a right way to disagree. There is a way to respond that preserves the dignity of another human individual that does not presume the worst of them or assign the worst to them, but rather responds appropriately as a believer. Now he's going to bear out how this is actually done beginning in verse 19. And he actually expands the conversation beyond just employment, and he says this, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God." Now, what Peter says here is both apparent on the one hand and countercultural on the other. He says, look, understand that if you do something wrong and you suffer the consequences because of it, there's nothing particularly noble about being brave when taking your consequences. That's just the natural consequence of poor behavior, and when when we behave poorly, understand you may just get what you deserve. We all understand how that works, but he says, if you do the right thing and, and endure unjust suffering, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God, and that's a fascinating idea when he says here that you are to endure sorrows, the other 20 sometimes that word is used throughout the New Testament, it is never once speaking of physical suffering. It is talking here about the idea of emotional turmoil. Why? Because as terrible as physical suffering is, emotional suffering is even more excruciating, especially when you haven't done anything wrong to deserve it. Now think again about the context of this passage. Here, these servants have been told that in the eyes of God, there is a perfect equality between themselves as the lowliest members of society and the most high-born king. And immediately within them, that must well up some sense of hopefulness. Are you kidding me? The, the emperor himself, this man who is worshipped as a god among my countrymen, are you telling me that God loves me just as much as he might love a person of that position? that God is no respecter of individuals and that he doesn't look at what I've accomplished or what I've not accomplished or what I've done right or what I've done wrong or or the family I'm born into or God doesn't care about any of that. He just loves me because he loves me. And imagine then the, the passionate response of the Christian towards a God who would care for them this way, that God is not a respecter of persons, that he doesn't look on the outward appearance, that That as Paul says, there is no more in the eyes of God now, slave or free. And they, like any of us, wanted to self-actualize that reality. All right, let's put this into practice then. Let's abolish slavery. Let's move out of these positions. Let's overthrow the mastery. Let's establish a societal equality. They naturally wanted to be seen by others as having the same dignity with which God himself viewed them. The same dignity with which their creator imbued them. But Peter is writing to the actual experience of the individuals. Because Christianity is unbelievably practical. It isn't just high-minded theory and philosophy. It isn't just emotional adjustment or psychological psychological twitching. It is a shift in overall perspective. It is entirely practical when applied to our lives. So imagine now what the case for you might be as an analogy. Imagine for just a moment that everything that we value in an American context is removed. That the most basic rights that are recognized by our Constitution suddenly cease to exist for us. Imagine that your property rights are seized, that the home that you own no longer belongs to you, that the car that you drive is no longer yours. Imagine that the means of economic production is centralized, that you no longer own your own business, or or determine your own salary in accordance with your discussions with your employer. Imagine for just a moment that your freedom of speech is revoked and that you can be prosecuted, arrested, imprisoned, or killed for what it is that you say. Imagine, in other words, that the essence of our identity in a modern context has been completely stripped from us. Do you understand that that is exactly what happened to these Christians? That by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ, their ability to Their ability to make a salary from their jobs has been removed because they they were pulled out of the working guilds. They were thrown out of polite society. They were forced out of towns. Many of them were imprisoned or even killed, and all of a sudden these people are going, wait a minute, God says we have equality, and yet we're being treated worse than ever. This is a similar experience to what Paul himself went through. It's recorded for us in Philippians chapter 1. And by the way, if you're looking for a New Testament corollary to 1 Peter chapter 2, it is Philippians chapter 1 you can read them and what you find is that Peter and Paul are in sync on all of these ideas and Paul is practically living out what Peter is recommending here so it's worth reading on your own time and what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 is this he says in simply trying to declare the good news of the gospel and simply trying to bring freedom to the captives and trying to declare forgiveness for the guilty i've been arrested by the roman authorities and imagine what his response could have been in that moment. It could have been frustration with God. God, I've been trying to do the right thing. You saved me on that road to Damascus. My life before that was completely comfortable. I was a Pharisee. I was well regarded. I was wealthy. I had influence. I had power. But you called me to this God. And because of what you have called me to and because I've been faithful and because I'm obedient, here I am in prison. Or his attitude could have been resign. Well, that's it. Here I am, a Roman citizen with all the privileges and rights pertaining thereto, and yet I find myself in a Roman prison. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm educated. I'm well-respected, and yet I'm here. Forget it. They've taken everything from me. I'm done. But Paul doesn't respond that way. Here's what he says in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Writing from prison, he says these words I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's the amazing thing that happens with Christianity throughout the history of time. Whenever there is persecution, there is revival. It's so bizarre. It's the counter of everything that we would expect. We would expect that mistreatment would would mean that the church is driven away, that people refuse the faith, they walk away, but instead, whenever there's persecution and whenever there are martyrs and whenever people suffer because of their faith in Jesus Christ, a world looking on goes, what in the world would drive people to experience that sort of hardship for the sake of their faith? And rather than driven away from Jesus Christ, they're driven to Him. See, what Paul actually did and what Peter is encouraging here the scattered Christians to do is view their circumstances through a completely different lens, a broader lens, a bigger lens than their mere momentary experience. And that is so hard for us to do. I asked my own self the question this week, man, what would I be willing to suffer for my faith? I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that, but when you think about what's happening around the world, when you think about what's going on with brothers and sisters in all corners of the globe, and you begin to ask the question, would I be willing to endure what they're going through right now for the sake of the gospel? And in your mind, you go, of course I want to say yes, of course I want to have that sort of faith, but man, I'm not there. And just as my own confession, I find myself in my heart going, man, I'm not sure what I'm up for. Do I believe the reality of what Peter and Paul are saying here? Or am I just saying it because it's easy to say in my own context? But if the words of Acts chapter 17 are true, and Acts chapter 17 in a nutshell says that the places and times in which we live are ordained by God, in other words, you find yourself sitting here today as a result of the eternal sovereignty and providence of God, that God looked into time and that he planted you exactly where he wanted you, that you were born into the family that you were born into, that you had the experiences that you experienced, that you were born in the place that you were born for a particular reason and to a particular end. And if that's true, then necessarily everything you experience in this life, including being born into slavery in the first century or enduring the communist takeover under the Soviet Union or being killed for preaching the gospel in modern-day China or being arrested for gathering at a church in Canada during the 2021 COVID restrictions, while tragic, humanly speaking, and they are tragic, are clearly an opportunity to glorify God. to find hope and meaning in Him alone. See, this whole idea forces us to reckon with what we might do in similar circumstances. Not merely for the sake of declaring a courage and a bravery that we may never have to exercise, but for identifying and determining where our faith and our hope actually lies. And Paul, for his part, in Philippians said, when I was imprisoned, I wasn't going to knuckle under, but rather view that as an opportunity to preach all the more boldly. It's what he says later when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes further by saying, do you want to arrest me for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? Fine, I'll just proclaim the gospel to your guards and I'll see them saved as well. That there is no place in which you find yourself where God did not have an opportunity for the ministry of the gospel and his own glorification. And ultimately, as we find with both Paul and Peter, it results in their eternal joy. Paul says, I delight in seeing what God's doing doing in this prison. And he wasn't suffering for the sake of suffering. He's suffering for the sake of Christ. And those are two very different things. He's not a masochist. But he's saying, what I'm experiencing here, if it's for the gospel of Jesus Christ, is infinitely worthwhile. Well, where does the boldness to live like that come from? It comes from the life and example of our commanding officer. Verse 21 For to this you have been called. And remember what the this is up to and including potential mistreatment at the hands of authorities. To this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. In other words, he wasn't suffering for something that he did. He was suffering for doing the right thing. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, the truth is, though our circumstances are far different than those of these suffering Christians, we need this reminder just as much as they did. For very different reasons, admittedly, but just as much as they did. See, for these Christians, they were struggling, they were suffering, they were enduring, emotionally as well as physically. Suffering physically at the hands of unjust masters, suffering emotionally because they presumed that their newfound identity in Jesus Christ necessitated better treatment in this life. And when they didn't get that treatment, they were understandably discouraged. And likewise, we, particularly in a free, wealthy society, have a whole lot of presumptions about how our lives ought to go. Though it's rarely actually tied to our Christian identity. See, most modern people, certainly myself included, likely us included, we are so used to pleasurable living and to healthy bodies and to comfortable surroundings that when hardship comes into our lives, it feels like a foreign intrusion rather than the natural experience of living in a broken world. Suffering in the modern world feels foreign from human existence rather than natural to it. And remember Peter's answer here, he says, even if you never receive anything better in this life, you still have a living hope. Peter reminds these suffering Christians of their suffering Savior. As servants, do we expect better than our master? Because Jesus himself promised that if the world hates me, it will hate you too. Don't be surprised when hardship comes your way. It's what led Paul to say, I delight in the fact that I get to suffer on behalf of the one who suffered everything for me. And as the greatest leader who's ever lived, Jesus is not going to call you to do something that he was not willing to do himself. Peter here draws of all passages he could draw from on the pictures of Isaiah chapter 53. I want to read the relevant portions to you from Isaiah 53. You can read it on your own time, but here it is beginning in verse 4. Here's what the prophet Isaiah said. Surely he, that is Jesus, the Messiah that was to come, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced For our transgressions, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And the prophet Isaiah, writing hundreds of years before the arrival of Jesus Christ onto the scene, says, here's what you can expect from the Messiah. He is going to be pierced for your sins. He is going to be crushed because of our own violations of the law of God. He is going to bleed and suffer. He is going to be wounded in the flesh. But what's fascinating is, do you notice where both Isaiah and Peter put their emphasis in talking about the suffering of Jesus Christ? Not primarily on his body, but on his soul. They emphasize his emotional, his spiritual anguish He bore our griefs and our sorrows. God the Father turned His face away from the Son. We esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God. He was oppressed and afflicted. Do you remember Jesus in the garden? Sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, crying out to the Father, Tears streaming down his face. Do you remember Jesus on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the suffering that he endured, it was the emotional suffering, the suffering of the soul, the suffering of the mind that affected him the most. Yet he did not retaliate he did not make his captors suffer, though he had every right to do so. And understand, by the way, what we mean when we say that Jesus did this on our behalf. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-four: He himself bore, carried on himself, our sins in his own body. He bore our sins on the tree, that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness. As the song says, it was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Ultimately, it was us that put him on the cross. It was us that drove the nails into his hands and feet. It was us that pounded the crown of thorns into his head. It was us that mocked and spat upon him, and we have done that in our lives hundreds of or thousands of times, every time we think we can do it without him, every time we violate the instruction he's given to us, every time we ignore what God has asked us to do, symbolically, that's what we've done. We were the ones who deserved the retaliation. We were the ones who deserved the punishment. We were the ones who deserved the vengeance and the wrath. But instead, verse 23, Jesus Christ continued entrusting himself himself to him who judges justly. Jesus Christ had such confidence in the perfect judgment of his own father that he did not feel the need to fight for his own reputation or defend his own position. He entrusted himself to the father knowing that in his sovereign goodness and timing everything would be set right. He remembered the words of Genesis 18.25 which says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Do we trust God to be that good judge? And we sang earlier about the goodness of Jesus. And we sing those words gladly in that song. We sing about his faithfulness and his love and his care. But when life gets hard... When suffering comes, do we actually trust the judge of all the earth to do right? And I'll be the first to say that far too often I do not. God, why would you do this? Why would you allow that? when we feel the need to set right every wrong, when we feel the need to pay back an eye for an eye, when we feel the need to withhold forgiveness and to inflict damage, we are attempting to put ourselves in the position that belongs to God himself. And since Jesus entrusted judgment to the Father, do you notice, that the, do you notice now the position that belongs to Christ? Let me ask that again. Since Jesus entrusted judgment to the Father, do you notice in these two texts we read the position that now belongs to him? We find the answer in the comparison between Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter chapter 2. Isaiah describes Jesus as a silent lamb being led to slaughter, but Peter adds to that, and he says in verse 25 that 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 same silent lamb is now the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The sacrificial sheep has become the shepherd of your soul. So how do you handle the moments where while doing right and fulfilling your responsibilities and living in a God-honoring way, you're mistreated? How do you press on and not seek out vengeance? How do you show an appropriate response even to a crooked boss, you turn to the one who's been in your exact position. But infinitely more so. The one who loved you and sought you out when you were a lost sheep. The one who, when reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He is now your shepherd, your overseer, the judge of all the earth who promises to do right. You turn to the great high priest of Hebrews 15, one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is not an easy call. The call to a life of service, to a call of the call to a life of servanthood, the call to a life of slavery is not inherently an easy call until you remember who your true master is, the judge of all the earth who does right. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If Jesus suffered brutally for your sake and for mine, and if he not only suffered for us, but essentially at our hands, then who is it in our life that does not deserve forgiveness? Now this sermon in this text is not primarily about forgiveness, but I think the application is so strong because ultimately that's what Peter's getting after earlier in this text. How do you treat someone with proper regard and respect who is mistreating you? It requires forgiveness. And in order for forgiveness to be meted out, somebody has to pay the cost. And so the question for you, believer, is, are you going to inflict that cost on the person who mistreated you? Or are you going to take that cost on yourself knowing that Jesus took infinitely more so? I pray that as you think about the application of this text in your own life, and it'll be as varied as the people in this room, that the reminder of God's faithful and kind and good justice would drive us to be those who are meek and mild and trusting our lives up to and including, including suffering and persecution. Realizing that God's glory is ultimately what's most important and that through God being glorified, ultimately we find our deepest joy. Let's find our joy in Him. Let's look for it in the only place it can be found, in the living hope of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for the application of this text and I thank you for the way that it challenges us. I thank you, God, for for the ways that a text that seems so foreign from our experience and so different from anything that we've gone through in our life can also have such practical meaning for us. And so, God, I don't know how you intend to apply this to the hearts of those here today, but I pray, God, that in your, in your goodness and in your grace, you would do the work of applying it to our hearts. Show us, God, where we're holding on to resentment and bitterness. Show us where we presume that we deserve a better treatment than what we're getting. God, not so that we could suffer merely for the sake of suffering as if there's benefit in that, but God, that in the moments when we suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, we would realize that as servants of the Master, we are just reflecting the Master. God, help us to look to you as the example of and the power for life. Help us to look to emulate your behavior, and your character, and your nature, and to rest in your goodness, to rest in your forgiveness, and to rest in your grace. And God, do it in us for your glory and for our joy. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.